leadership team. Thank you. Man. Get me in the mood. Hebrews chapter 11 is where we'll be today. If you want to grab your Bibles uh, while you're turning there, I want to welcome you again. If you're our guest today at Strong Tower, uh, we're glad you could be with us. My name is Ben. I'm the lead pastor here. And um, yeah, we're here to worship Jesus. We are here to exalt Him. And so we're glad that you can be with us as we do that. We're in the middle of a series called Enduring by Faith, and it's in Hebrews chapter 11. And today we're looking at just verse 28 from Hebrews chapter 11. I know the screen probably says 27 and 28. I changed my mind. Uh, Verse 28, and uh, then we're going to skip over to Exodus chapter 12, which is the story that verse 28 is referring to. If you're there, say amen. Hear the reading of God's word. By faith, he, that's Moses, kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. And then over to Exodus chapter 12, the first 13 verses. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb, according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh, That night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are in. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to tag our text today, a liberating faith, a liberating faith. Let's pray before we begin. Heavenly Father, uh, we're so grateful that your word speaks to us even today from thousands of years ago. Lord, we see the truth of the gospel so plain, so real, and so relevant to us today. Lord, we ask as we look at your word today, you would help us endure, that you would give us the gift of faith, that we might endure uh, whatever sin, whatever suffering we might be facing right now, God. I don't know where everyone is as they come into this building or as they watch online and join us virtually. God, we are in different places, struggling with different things, but your gospel is enough. So God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would apply the gospel to our hearts 
to change us, to transform us into the image of your Son. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, Simone Biles is widely considered to be the greatest gymnast in history. And many folks would, would look at her career and you, you could see uh, all the various accomplishments. I mean, it reads like those old things we used to call phone books. You remember those? Those, those big, thick books they would drop on your front doorstep. Right? That, that's the kind of accomplishment she's had already in her career. And, and one of the things that she's known for now is in 2019, as she was preparing for the World Championships, she was preparing moves that no one else had ever done. Moves that literally had not been seen before. No one had done it in competition. And it was this specific move that she was doing for the balance beam. She was uh, preparing this move where on the balance beam you, you dismount, right? You come off the beam at the end, and usually they, they do their best move at the end. It's kind of the grand finale of their uh, performance. And she was preparing this move that would be a double-twisting, double-somersault. Right? I don't know much about gymnastics, but I think that means two twists and two flips <laughs> before you land, right? And so she was preparing this. She spent hundreds, literally hundreds of hours preparing for competition, doing it over and over and over again to perfect it. She, was, she is known for her balance and, and just her, her precision in what she's doing. And so she wanted it to be absolutely perfect for competition. She comes to the competition having practiced and put all this time in and uh, she gets to that moment in her performance and she jumps off the beam, one flip, two flip, two twists, all of that and sticks it. Never been done before. You know, the crowd erupts and cheers and then here's the crazy part. She gets a lower score than expected by the governing gymnastics body and this is the reason. They decide to give her a lower score because they want to discourage anyone else from trying it ever again. Because they told her in the score, this is too dangerous. Too dangerous. I mean, think about that. It's, it's too dangerous for the average person. I mean, there are some things that really, if you don't have enough balance, if you don't have enough precision, they can be absolutely dangerous. And she saw that, and we see that in life. You see that in all kinds of different areas. You see that maybe in your marriage. You see that in friendships. But one area you may not think about it much is actually the balance in your understanding of who God is. Right? It's what we call theology. Theology is, is what you think about when you think about God. It's how you, how you understand Him. And, and if you are off balance in your theology, it can be quite dangerous. You can fall and break your neck. It's the kind of thing that people want to discourage you from even trying. right? And, and there's this, this problem that we have in understanding who God is where one of the hardest things to keep in balance is, is this tension between His justice and His mercy. How, how do you understand God's justice and His mercy? Because in our culture, we struggle with both. We really do. We, we struggle with justice. We struggle with this idea that, that God would punish sin. I mean, who is God to tell me what to do with my life? Who is God to step into my life and tell me that He owns all my resources? Who is God to step into my life and tell me what I can and cannot do in my relationships? 
right? Who is God to say that such and such is wrong? We struggle with that. And so as a culture, maybe you as well, we, we struggle with this idea that God would punish sin. And so we pull back and we choose a God that doesn't punish sin, but he looks over it. He, he ignores it. We prefer a God who's loving without confronting, right? But then there's this other problem, right, where we have this issue of mercy. And, and most of us would probably not say we struggle as much with mercy, but really? What about those people? Right? What, what about the people who've wronged you in your past? What about mercy towards the people who you just can't stand what they believe and what they stand for and, and you can't stand what they post on social media, right? Well, what about mercy for the people who've made your life a living hell at work? What, what about mercy for the people who've, who've hurt your family and your kids so deeply? You see it kind of welling up? It's like, I don't know, maybe, maybe God's not so merciful. Or maybe I don't want Him to be merciful. Maybe I want him to be just, but not merciful. Or maybe I want him to be merciful, but not just. And, and this is the problem, right? How do you have perfect balance in your understanding of who God is? And what's true is God is both perfectly. That he is fully just and he's fully merciful. He's both, right? It's, it's two twists, two turns, stick it, right? He, he just perfectly balanced God. And that's what brings us to this text, because we've been walking through this this series of of character studies, if you will, in Hebrews chapter 11, and we've been calling it Enduring by Faith, because we've been looking at how the early church has been struggling with suffering. They've been struggling with how are we going to make sense of what we're experiencing in the world and what the gospel says, right? Right? It doesn't seem as if my life has gotten any easier or better since I started following Jesus. And so the people are starting to wonder, maybe we should go back. This doesn't seem like it's working. This doesn't seem like I thought, you know, this was going to get better and this was going to get better and it's gotten harder. And so the whole book of Hebrews is about how Jesus is better. And it comes to this conclusion in in chapter 11 where he's given all these examples of how we endure by faith because Jesus is better. And now we come to Moses, and this is kind of the second part of Moses' inclusion in the chapter. And we see Moses really needed, in order to endure in faith, he needed a God who was both just and merciful. He needed a God who was balanced in his love because what Moses was lacking was that kind of health, that kind of wholeness. And so I want to look at that today, just in this brief time that we got together, that tension between God's justice and His mercy and how He helps us endure through both. And so if you're taking notes today, let's look first at the justice of God, the justice of God. Look at me at verse 12 in Exodus chapter 12, and then we're going to kind of work our way backwards as God gives these uh, instructions to Moses. God says this in verse 12, he says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Now, we step into this story in the middle of a showdown, right? There's this showdown happening. Maybe you're familiar with the story of Exodus, but Israel was enslaved for 430 years. 
For 430 years, they've been calling out to God to deliver them. And God finally sends Moses to be their deliverer. And when God sends Moses, he, he calls Moses to start the, the process by going to Pharaoh. And he tells Moses, I don't want you to wait on justice. I want you to walk right in and demand it. It's kind of like Frederick Douglass when he said that power concedes nothing without a demand. It never has, it never will. Moses is seeing that happen. Moses is seeing this call of God on his life to go demand from Pharaoh. And so you can imagine Moses walks into Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world, walks into his court and says with with probably trembling lips and, and sweaty palms, let my people go. Sometimes you hear that in Sunday school as a kid, and it sounds cool, and the kids march around in a circle or whatever, and, and you don't realize the threat that this was. That Moses was demanding from the most powerful man in the world that he would deliver his people, and Pharaoh just kind of chuckled. Pharaoh laughs, Pharaoh refuses, and then God turns up the heat, right? Moses goes back to him, and he warns him again, and Pharaoh refuses. And then Moses goes back to him and he says, all right, if you don't do this, God is going to send judgment on Egypt. And he still refuses. And so the plagues begin in plague one, plague two, plague three, plague four, plague five, all the way up to plague nine. He's still refusing. And then Moses goes back one more time. The 10th plague, the final show of God's power. And it's the Passover. And God had warned Pharaoh in Exodus chapter 4 that this could happen. He said in chapter 4, verse 22, he said, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I mean, the Exodus, the, the Passover scene is really a battle over firstborn sons. It's it's God saying to Pharaoh, Israel is my son, and if you let him go, we'll be fine. But but if you don't let my son go, then I'm going to have to deal with your son. And he tells Pharaoh, I'm going to go through the land, I'm going to pass through the land at midnight, and I'm going to destroy, bring judgment on every firstborn male, man and beast. Wipe them out. I mean, this is heavy. Think about what God is saying. But you got to ask yourself, as before we move on, why ten plagues? You ever thought about that? Why, why not just one plague and then the Passover? Why not four? Why not seven? Why, why does he go through the trouble of ten plagues, sending Moses back, sending Moses back, sending Moses back, over and over and over again? Here's why. We see God's persistent patience in the plagues. We see what 2 Peter would say later on in the New Testament. He says, The Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Right? God's wrath and His judgment are not like this irrational temper tantrum of a three-year-old. Right? Where your three-year-old's running around and then rolls on the ground and starts whining and crying and throwing a fit. That is not God's wrath. It's very intentional. It's very restrained. It's under control. God is saying, I am waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. Here's a chance. Here's a chance. Here's a chance. But I can't keep waiting forever because I have to bring justice. 
I, I can't, in my nature, I can't wait forever because I can't look the other way. I can't pretend like it's not happening. I'm calling you to myself. But eventually, eventually I have to bring justice. And justice means his judgment. Right? God's justice is inseparable from his judgment. I mean, listen, we, we live in an age now, in a culture now, where, where justice has become pop culture. I mean, it just has. And that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's entered into the discussion of, of everything. It's, it's discussed at our dinner table. It's discussed at, at our workplace. It's discussed with our kids and our family. There's all these questions swirling around our culture. People are posting about it. People are talking about it on the news. The church is talking about it. And, and it's because we're wrestling with these questions of how do we address important issues? How do we address issues like immigration or policing or, or uh, all kinds of things, right? How, how do we address abortion? How do we address mass incarceration? How do we address public schools that are struggling? What are we supposed to do as Christians? And so because it's become the conversation, many people within the church are trying to dismiss it as, oh, you're just you're, you're, uh, coming into the culture and, and you're, you're just doing what the culture wants you to do or... Or, or, or people are dismissing it as you've become uh, political, you, you, you've become, you know, whatever, progressive, or whatever label you want to throw out there. And I want to say before we move on, just very clearly, the reason we do justice is because it's biblical, yeah. not because it's popular. We do justice because it was biblical before social media was anyone's soapbox. It was biblical before CNN and Fox News told you what to believe, right? It, it was biblical before uh, political parties, you know, made people their puppets. We do it because it's biblical, not because it's popular. But as we do justice, we can't forget that justice can't be separated from judgment. Right? And to think about justice biblically, it means that it has to include God's righteous judgment. And what, what that means is justice really has two sides. You've got restorative justice, but also this punitive justice. You've got justice that restores what's wrong, but also punishes what's wrong. And so you have to have both. If you're going to have biblical justice, and the Passover points us to this punitive justice, this demand for justice upon sin, that sin can't go, uh, it can't go rampant without being punished without being addressed. It, it's not justice if you look over it and don't speak to it. And so justice has to go through his judgment because he is holy, right? You, you might ask, well, why, why does God have to punish sin? It's because of his very nature. That he's, he's holy, and holiness just means that, that he's unique. He's, he's perfect in every way. He's, there's, he, there's this uh, special quality about him. That's what the word holiness means. It, it means to be set apart. And so because God is holy and he's unique and he's special, that, that he can't even, the Bible says, he can't even be in the presence of sin. And so what you see in the Passover story is the reason judgment has to come is because God shows up, right? He, he's saying, I'm going to pass through the land. And if my holiness passes through the land, it can't be in the presence of sin. And so his very presence is what brings the judgment. His very presence is what brings the punishment. It's Him passing through the land. 
And it's really this prophetic picture that gets played out in the rest of the whole Bible and, and looks forward to the day that God is coming again. And, and, and the good news of the gospel is His presence coming. The good news of the gospel is that God will show up again one day and He will right the wrongs. He will bring to, to all the, the evil and all the corruption that's in us and in everything else in the world, He will bring righteousness. But it includes judgment. And so the question of the Passover is, how do we prepare for that? Right? So you see God's justice, but you see it in perfect balance with His mercy. And this is the second point, the mercy of God. Look at what God tells Moses in verse 3. He tells him how to prepare. He says, Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. Right? So here, here back up for a second. Every household in Israel, and there's millions of people at this point in, Israel, or in, in uh, Egypt that are Jews, Millions of people, every household needs to take a lamb, and he says it has to be a year-old lamb without blemish. And he says that you, know, you can take it from, uh, from the lambs or, or from the, uh, the goats, the, the sheep and the goats. He says you can take it from even your neighbor if you don't have an opportunity to have one your own. He said whatever you got to do, make sure you get a lamb. And it, it's this pointing towards this blameless offering. Right? It's interesting that God chooses a lamb that's going to liberate his people. I mean, think about it. It's so weak. It's so powerless. It's so foolish. And yet God says in verse 7, he says this. He says, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. I mean, think about it. The, the Egyptians must have thought they were crazy. Millions of people taking an, a lamb from their flock, and all of them are going to kill a lamb at their house and spread the blood across the top of their front door. I mean, the stench of death in Egypt that night. They must have looked out and thought, these people are nuts. What, what are they doing? What are they preparing for? Why is this happening? And all you can smell all evening was death. Here, here's the thing, right? It was, it was pointing towards this sign. God says it's going to be a sign for them that they would, they would see this blood and, and they would know that, that I am coming in judgment, but more than a sign to you, it's going to be a sign to me. And when I pass through the land, if I see the blood, I will pass over your house. Right? If I see the blood, I'm going to pass over the house. Now, this is real important. You've got to listen to me carefully. You've got to understand why God wanted them to put the blood on their house. Right? He doesn't give instructions for them to take the blood and smear it on the Egyptians' houses. Listen, He tells Israel to put the blood on their house because they're guilty. Right? If this was just a story of, of some kind of political liberation where he just wants to get Israel out of Egypt because they are the victims, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, there, there are aspects of that. God comes to the side of the oppressed and God cares. He hears their cries. He, he wants to deliver them not just from their sin, but also from the suffering that they're dealing with. And, and he brings them out. There's so much to the story. But if it was only about that, it doesn't make any sense. But he says, I want you to put it on your house because you're guilty. 
I want you to put it on your house because the blood is not about, uh, you know, it's not about the good people and the bad people. The blood is about the covered people. The blood is about that there, there has to be death, right? In other words, that night there would be death in every single house. And it was going to be a question of would the, would the death be a son or would the death be a lamb? Which one is it going to be? See, the lamb is a substitute for the son. So that death would have already come in that house. You see the difference? Right? And so what God is saying is God is saying the only solution for sin, for the sin of Egypt and the sin of Israel, is a substitute. It's a substitute. Genesis 22 tells the story of God coming to Abraham and, and uh, telling Abraham that he needed to sacrifice his son Isaac. And if you go back and you read the story, you, you just see this dramatic picture of what, of what you're seeing in Exodus in the Passover. Because God comes to Abraham, he tells uh, he tells him this, this crazy idea that I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. This is the, the beloved son of Abraham. This is the one that Abraham had been waiting for. This is the promise of God in human flesh. This is the one who God would use to bless the nations, right? Abraham in his old age has Isaac. He, he loves Isaac so much. Why in the world would God say, go sacrifice your son? I mean, God had already said this was not his will, right? He, he had said this... This idea of child sacrifice was not allowable, it was not biblical, in fact, it was sinful. So why in the world would God tell Abraham to do something this ridiculous? Abraham doesn't get an answer. And so Abraham says, I I don't know what to do, but I guess God knows more than me. So he goes forward with it. And he tells Isaac to prepare the stuff to, to go to Mount Moriah. And they walk 45 miles to Mount Moriah. Could you imagine you're walking 45 miles the whole time thinking you're going to sacrifice your son? I mean, he must have just been weeping. Isaac's looking at his dad thinking, what in the world is going on? We've been to Mount Moriah multiple times. We've made these sacrifices. Why is this one so emotional? He didn't know. He gets there and he unpacks the stuff and pulls out the wood, pulls out the stuff to make the fire and looks at his father, and the Bible says he asks Abraham, Father, where is the lamb? We have everything but the lamb. And Abraham says this, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb. And then he begins to bind his son up, ties him with the rope. Isaac now realizes what his dad is doing. He starts weeping. It's an emotional scene. Abraham pulls back the knife, and he's ready to move forward, hoping that God would show up. And at the very last moment, God shows up and he stops him. He says, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, look over there. There's a ram in the bush. And the ram, listen to me, the ram was a substitute for his son. The whole point of the scene was not that he would ever sacrifice his son. The whole point of the scene was for Abraham to know that the substitute was required. The whole point of the scene was for Abraham to know that it was the only option, the only way that he could, he could have the, the grace, the only way that he could have the promise, the only way that he could have a relationship with God would be this substitution. Right? Substitution is the only solution. It means that we can't bargain with God. We can't come to God with all the things that we've done. We we can't come to God with our good intentions. We can't say, hey, you know what? I really didn't mean to do that, but look at all these other things I've done, God. 
It means that we can't come to God and, and make a case before Him and say, well, at least I really you know, cared for my kids, or at least I really did some good stuff at my job, or look at all this ministry I've done. And none of that. He's saying the only thing that matters is a substitute. There's only one solution. But we come up with all kinds of solutions, don't we? I mean, we try to come up with solutions that we feel good about. We come up with solutions that hide our sin from others so we can avoid the shame that we feel about our past. We, we try to minimize our sin by comparing to others, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. At least I haven't done what they've done. Or at least I don't you know, subscribe to their politics. Or at least I don't uh, do what they've done at their job. Or at least I don't, you know, whatever your thing is, at least I'm not like them. We minimize our sin hoping it's a solution. Or we try to defend our sin because we believe the lie that God won't be enough. So I, I need this. I can't let it go. I, I need this. Or we try to fix our sin. Just trying to be God for God. You see that? Like all, all of these other solutions, they don't work. And the reason they don't work is because it's just this simple. It has to be blameless. Right? When, when God comes to Moses and he tells him the, the type of, of sacrifice, he, he's saying it has to be blameless because that's all I'll accept. And when we try to minimize sin or defend sin or fix sin, you're missing the point because it has to be blameless. Your whole life. And this is why the only, the only solution is another life for your life. One that hasn't been messed up. One that doesn't have a past. One that doesn't have brokenness. One that hasn't failed. Another life for your life. And it has to be bloody. In fact, it, it has to be the blood of God. And this is what you see lastly. This is the last point, the blood of God. Look back at verse 11. Verse 11, it says, In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Now, this is kind of hilarious. You think about the scene, right? They're all gathered around the meal. Everybody's prepared a part of the meal. They come to the table, and God says, I, I want to dictate how you eat the meal. Not just what you eat, but how you eat it. And he says, I want you to eat with your shoes on. I want you to eat with your belt fastened, your shirt tucked in. And I want you to hold your staff while you're sitting at the table. And I want you to eat it as fast as you possibly can. I mean, what, I thought we were supposed to like, this is supposed to be a feast. You take your time. You're eating a good meal, right? We're about to be saved. I want you to eat it as fast as you can. And for generation after generation after generation, this is how the Passover meal has been eaten. In haste, right? This is why. Because the meal itself was designed to be an act of faith. The meal itself was designed to be this sense of not just looking back on what God had done, not just celebrating at the meal uh, the provision of this lamb to take my place so that I don't get the judgment of God. It's also to look forward, right? He says, I want you to look forward to what's coming. And what's coming is a greater lamb. 
And so generation after generation after generation, they're, they're looking ahead to the Lamb that would come. They're looking ahead to how God would provide the ultimate Passover. And so every time they celebrated, they're looking forward, looking forward, and then it happens. Right? At the end of Jesus' ministry, uh, as he was celebrating the Passover meal with his disciples for the last time, you know, if you know the scene, Jesus comes to the end of, of his time with the disciples and he tells them this is going to be the end. They don't believe him at first, but he says, I want you to go find a place for us to celebrate the Passover together. And so they go and they find this borrowed room and they, they prepare the place with all the different elements. And, and what's shocking is, is there's these things that change at the Passover meal. And first of all, what's shocking is Jesus is the one presiding over the meal. Now, that's not the shocking part, right? Jesus being their, their leader, he, he would be probably in the highest social standing, so he would, he would lead the meal and explain the elements. But part of explaining the elements was you would lift up the bread right before you eat it, and you would say this saying that was part of the Passover meal. You would say, this is the bread of affliction that our ancestors ate so that we could be free. That's what you would do. If you're presiding over the meal, you would hold up the bread, you would say that, but when Jesus grabs the bread, he holds it up and he says, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. I mean, Jesus shocks everybody. They've been celebrating the Passover their whole life. Their parents celebrated the Passover, their grandparents celebrated the Passover, their great-grandparents. No one had ever said that. What kind of Passover meal is this? Jesus is changing the words, and then he shocks them again. Because you have all the elements on the table, and there's some key elements. You've got to have the bread, you've got to have the wine. They drank four cups of wine, by the way. That's a sidebar. Four <laughs> cups of wine. You've got to have the herbs, you've got to have all the elements. And you've got to have the lamb. So they've got the bread, they've got the wine, they've got the herbs. But where's the lamb? I mean, I guarantee you, the disciples come to this meal and they're thinking, why is there no lamb? What, what kind of Passover meal is this? Jesus is changing the words. There's no lamb. Here's why. There's no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table. Amen. Right? Jesus is saying, tonight, I'm the lamb. And so he picks up the wine and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. Jesus is taking the place of the lamb. He's saying, I am the Passover lamb. I am what was promised. And when the Passover happened and the blood was put on the wall or on the door and God passed over you in judgment because there was a death in your place, that's me. It's my blood. It's my blood that will cover you. It's my blood that will deliver you. It's my blood that will liberate you and set you free. It's my blood that will forgive your sins. It's my blood that will save you. It's me. It's in the blood of Jesus that you have both the justice of God fulfilled and the mercy of God poured out. You see it in his blood. In November of 2008, there was a group of terrorists who attacked uh, a, a uh, place in, in Mumbai, India, and uh, it, it was tragic, so tragic. They, they took over all these different areas in the city, and one of them was the iconic uh, Taj Mahal Palace Hotel. And it, it was about two, I think it was two nights and three days that they seized the hotel and, and these men come in with guns and they're, they're shooting everybody they can see and everybody's scurrying and as fast as they can, they take over the place. But when they first come in, they come into the, 
the dinner where everybody was eating in, in this uh, dining hall. And they come in, and a few of the people who are sitting in the room, they hear the gunshots in the other room, and they immediately duck under the table, and they hide. And about 200 people are killed all around them. And they hide under that table for days. And when everything uh, you know, gets under control and, and the scene is, is over and, and uh, the, these reporters come in and they're trying to figure out exactly what happened, they find these people hiding and they interview them and they, say, they ask this question. They said, how, how were you able to survive? How was how this miracle able to happen as all these other people were seen? How, how were you not taken out like everyone else? And one of the guys said this, He said, I have no idea how it happened, but I suppose it might have to do with the fact that I was soaked in the blood of other people around me, and maybe they took me as dead already. That's how the blood of Jesus works. The blood of Jesus works like this. It works where God sees death on you and considers you dead already. The blood of Jesus is meant to cover you so that that by Jesus, his death has already happened to you so that you can have his life. Do you see that? There's an exchange. Jesus says, I will give you my blood. I will give you my death so that you can then have my life. It's like the old hymn writer said, there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. The blood of Jesus. Are you covered in that blood? Listen, as we close, that that is how you endure. To have a God who, who loves justice and loves mercy And at the cross, they kiss. At the cross, you see God's perfect justice, perfect punishment, but also His perfect restoration happening. You see Jesus' love for you that He would give His whole life. And so maybe you're listening today and and, and you're kind of new to the faith or you're trying to think through what Christianity means. Listen to me. There There is a lie out there that you will hear and have already heard that Christianity is about being a good person changing your ways, changing your life, turning your life around, getting right, whatever you may say. That's not what it is. Christianity is about being covered. Christianity is about blood. It's about a God who would shed His own blood for sinners. And the only way, the only way you know God is if you're covered. If you're covered. And if you're covered, you can endure anything. You can endure anything. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for that amazing, incredible work you've done for us. Standing in our place, sending your son Jesus to shed the very blood that we should have shed. Lord, we thank you that death can bring hope and life. We thank you that you can work through weakness and seeming failure. You can work through the foolishness and the, the uh, strangeness of a lamb. And God, we ask that you would give us the eyes of faith today to see that for what it is, that it is our true hope.
It is our true hope that we are covered in the blood of Jesus. It is our true hope that we have a God who loves mercy and justice more than we do. And not only that, has a way to bring them about. You have made a way out of no way, as we sung earlier, God. You have made a way where it seemed as if all of us would be lost and hopeless, but you made a way. And you hold it out for us. You say, come to me, all who would have this blood, all who would take places with me. What an exchange. What a love. We pray, God, that you would help us to be transformed by that good news as we continue to worship you today. We pray in Jesus' name.